Amen. Well, here, turn your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. To give us a little context of what's happening, in chapter 11, uh, the latter part of 11, in verse 37, a certain Pharisee had asked Jesus to come to his house and to eat. And as Jesus rolled into the home, he opened a big, huge can up on the Pharisees. Why? Because they had been living a, a life of hypocrisy. Asking of the, of the Jews things that they themselves would not do. And so as the can was opened up, you hear Jesus say to them many times, Woe unto you. And then as um, they're there eating, because the first, the first moment they, they sit down, they're eating, and the, and the Pharisees notice that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Please. Please. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't notice things like that. Jesus responds, and he says, you foolish ones. Then he goes on to, as I said, woe unto you, and then we find ourselves in our text in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now understand, after he had engaged with them, they begin, obviously, when you start getting rebuked by uh, this wonderful Jesus, one who many who were seeking to, uh, to just even notice, touch, or be with, they started to get offended greatly. And then as the offense would begin, there was this great multitude of people that would gather, as we see in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people have gathered together so that they would trample one another, he began to say to his disciples, now listen, the picture is this. Jesus just opened up the can on the Pharisees. And meanwhile, there was this great body of people, so much so that they couldn't even count, and they were trampling one another. This crowd of people had one concern. I believe it was themselves. See, I don't think they were looking for spiritual truth or intimacy with the Father. They were looking to meet their own personal needs. And the same is today. So many people in times of trouble are turning to God in their time of need, looking for their needs to be met, their motives generally ill, looking for personal gain. But notice here that Jesus does not tend to their needs. He instead speaks to his disciples with this great lesson that we're about to learn. Now, I'm not saying that God does not care about the needs of the multitude. But I believe they were not willing to look past their needs to meet with the God who could meet their needs. Does that make sense? See, their priorities were off. Because later in the chapter, you see Jesus in verse 22, he says to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about this life, your life, and what you will eat and he goes on to saying what you will wear. Don't seek after these things. Don't be anxious. Don't be seeking the things of this world. And then in verse 31, he says, But seek ye the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. See, that's the right priority. God will meet the needs of those who come to him, seeking him first. As it says, as Jesus spoke on, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 6, he said the very same thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these other things would be added unto you. So knowing their hearts, he did not tend to their needs. Instead, in this great multitude of people, they're tripping over each other. The Pharisees are angry at him. And in this crowd, he looks to his disciples and he gives them great spiritual truth. This morning, if you're willing to surrender your own agenda or stop trying to figure out your problems or putting yourself in a position where you can maybe leverage your needs to be met, instead, put yourself in the position of the disciples. Don't be a face in the crowd. Don't be one of the multitude. Be the disciple. Be the disciple. See, because a disciple is a student. A student of a teacher or a rabbi. And the disciples of Jesus were those who were committed to his teaching and committed to his way. That is what a disciple is. But the wonderful thing about a disciple of Jesus Christ, not only are we students of the way of Jesus Christ, but we are his friends. We are his family. We are his children. We are so much more than just a student. But yet a student is a part of who we are. And if this morning we're willing to do that, then we will receive just as his disciples did. And this is the nugget that Jesus lays on them. He said to them, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The history of the Pharisees is, is an interesting one. I read from uh, G. Campbell Morgan. He says this about the Pharisees. The history of the Pharisees is a wonderful history. They arose out of the Maccabean period and were to the Jewish people at the time what the Puritans were to England in the period of the greatness of their greatness. The Pharisees constituted an order created to prevent the nation coming into contact with other nations and losing its purity and its identity. And their influence was of the highest and of the best. The Pharisee movement arose out of a passion of men for a divine idea for that nation. See, they started off wonderful. They started off with great zeal. But they lost that spiritual and moral influence. Their zeal had turned into self-righteousness. So much so that Jesus would say, woe unto them. So much so that Jesus would say, woe unto you. And then in chapter 12 would make them an example of what not to be. So many Christians today are like the Pharisees who start off wonderful. They start off with this great zeal and yet compromise creeps in. Such as hypocrisy that will take us to spiritual ruin. Listen. You never want Jesus saying, woe 
unto you. And to these Pharisees who were hypocrites, he said just that. What you want to hear from Jesus is come unto me, or I give unto you. But you never want to hear woe unto you. And to avoid that, we need to warn ourselves of the danger of hypocrisy. Because that is exactly what Jesus spoke to his disciples in this scene. The word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word that means an actor of one who plays a part, wearing a mask to hide the true identity. Someone who is trying to be more spiritual than they are. They know that they're pretending and they hope that they will not be found out. Their Christian life is only but a shadow, shallow masquerade. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the two-faced, phony, fake Christian. It comes in many forms. Matter of fact, uh, in, in the form of, of this form in the church, I, well, I'm just going to say this. It's often that the Word of God is preached mightily, passionately, where there's great conviction, great correction, and yet the response is so little. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there's a masquerade going on. The Word of God is preached, conviction is given, correction is given, because that's what the Word of God is for, and yet the response to the message is generally small. Because there's this idea of, well, if I go forward for prayer, people will think that I'm doing this or doing that. Well, guess what? We all are. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? And so if we all just wipe the slate clean and say, let's get on the same playing field. We all know that we're sinners. So when the message is given, let's all respond properly. Yes, I know that not everybody needs to come up for prayer to know that there's a response. I know some people respond right where you are. Praise God. That's wonderful. But understand this. I believe there's something powerful when you make a move towards God. When, when you are convicted by the Word of God or you're corrected by the Word of God, make a response physically because it helps greatly spiritually so that you don't leave here with the surface being touched but you leave here with the depths of your soul being touched. T to me, that is the difference between a phony and, and the real deal. Wanting to be real with God, not wanting to masquerade, not fearing those around us, but fearing our holy God. You see in the home, hypocrisy. Parents holding children to standards that they themselves are not willing to uphold. That's hypocrisy. Moms teaching kids to be kind, be patient, be thankful. Yet they see bitter words towards their husbands. Little ones seeing their moms belittling their, their dad. Friends, it's, it's so real, but it has to be dealt with. As a youth pastor at, at, at a Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, my biggest problems were always parents. 
It weren't the kids. The kids I could deal with. It was the parents that were killing me. Because they would demand so much from their kids, but yet I would see in their own lives that they themselves are not living the standard that they want their kids because I want my kid to be better, better than I was growing up or better than I am. And what they do is they, they show their kids what the Pharisees were doing to the Jews. Be careful of that, parents. Be careful of that. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Look at who have seen this. You've seen a chaos or say there's something, there's an attitude in this person, and then the phone rings. Hello. Yeah, how you doing? Right? A second before, they're like, hey, how you doing? It's called the phone voice. Everyone, got, everyone has a phone voice. Well, gee, how do we, what do we do? Were we supposed to answer the phone and say, hold on right now, I'm losing it. <laughs> well, guess what? Why not? Why not answer the phone and say, you know what? I can't talk to you right now, but I'd rather have you pray for me because I am losing it. <laughs> Call me back. <laughs> See, that's being real. Hello, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, come on over. That's being phony. Obviously, there is a depth in what I'm talking about. But that is a good picture. It gives us a good idea of how it creeps in so easily. Wives desiring affection and communication from their husbands. But then they belittle them with hurtful words. And they justify it because they're the ones going to church and praying. Husbands finding intimacy by engaging in fake comforts of the television and internet and pornography while ignoring their God-given gift in their wives and justifying it thinking that nobody knows. It's all a secret. It's unseen. In schools and in, and in the office, we, we have been called as, as God's people to be an ambassador, to represent Him properly, and yet there's this masquerade going on. Loose living, casual drinking, all, all this stuff that is happening, friends, I'm telling you, it is weighing on you and it's affecting our witness to the world. Phony living. See, when you find yourself, whether you're at school or you're in the office, and we as believers are not called to be this... Um, chameleon where you be who you are with because in some cases people have many masks this is my office mask this is my church mask and this is my home mask and man I don't even want to pull out the mask that I wear late at night don't even want you to see that mask we think we're putting up the mask and we're covering up the sin but verse 2 says this in our text. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. There is no secrets with God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He is a holy and just God. That is why... 
it is a serious issue for us this morning. Because a little leaven in your life can do big damage. And Jesus did just that. He compared hypocrisy with the leaven, yeast. Something every Jew would associate with evil. As it was instituted in Exodus 12, the Passover, every man of the household of his, his home would take a lamb and make the sacrifices, but also he would take out the leaven and remove it completely and utterly from his home. And this morning, as disciples, we need to examine our hearts and ask the Lord, search every corner, every crevice of our heart. If there be any hypocrisy, help us to remove it. Because like yeast, hypocrisy becomes, it, excuse me, it begins very small, but it grows quickly and quietly. And as it grows, it infects the whole body and soul. It is said that hypocrisy does to the ego what yeast does to bread dough. It puffs it up. And soon pride will take over and you'll be just what the world accuses us. Hypocrites. It has to be stopped. This cancer must be removed. And there is a cure for it. That cure... That remedy is found in verse 4. Let's read it together. Jesus beautifully gives us the cure to this cancer of hypocrisy. He says, My friends, I understand again, he's not speaking to the multitude, he's not speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to those who call themselves a student, a follower. A fanatic. He says, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes. I say to you, fear him. That is the remedy. Holy fear. Holy fear is the remedy to the cancer of hypocrisy. Because, you see, a happy soul is a soul that has been awed by the view of God's majesty. That has had a vision of God's goodness and His greatness, His holiness, His perfect righteousness, His irresistible power, the power that can give life and take life away, His sovereign grace, His personal love, His chastening, His patience, His wrath, His purpose. See, friends, He is the lion and He is the lamb. And He's to be viewed that way. We're to see Him in this awe, his greatness. He is a God to be feared, yet a God to be loved. It's to be balanced. You see, a proper fear is having that reverence and that awe. Being afraid to offend God in any way. Are you afraid to offend God? You should be. 
a trembling and a quaking if one knows that they have offended God and have not obtained forgiveness. You see, what has happened is we are living in the age of grace, and I feel and I sense that the church has taken this age of grace for... We've taken advantage. You see, we are to walk in grace, not walk on it. We're not to tread on the mercies of God. We're to walk in them. There was a time when it was generally spoken of a believer as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. That practice is long gone. We find a, a great model in what I'm talking about in the early church. The early church, listen to me, as we look at the book of Acts, verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 31, listen what it says of the church, the early church. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. What a great balance. What a great balance we see here. That they were filled with this peace and they were edified, yet they were walking in fear of the Lord. And yet they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is a wonderful balance. A balance that the church today should continue. Because when you're walking in the fear of the Lord, you are walking with a reverence unto the Lord. But yet you walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit because you've been forgiven. You know that God is desiring that intimacy with you and you're just walking in that peace. But yet you're still in complete understanding that this is a mighty God. A God that spoke this world into existence. A God who holds everything in His righteous right hand. That is a wonderful balance. The early church had this balance as they had the peace of God and they walked in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus commanded his disciples to fear God whom had the power to kill and to cast into hell. I believe he did that as a deterrent from becoming like the Pharisees. But see, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is so much more. It brings so much more. And I want to make a side note. I want to look real quick what, what truly it brings for you and I. The benefits of fearing God. Listen, the fear of the Lord brings us to a place of true worship. Psalm 2.11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that interesting? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling? What is that? What does that mean? And, and all I could come uh, up with was this idea of rejoicing for my standing with God is, is wonderful, yet it's in this presence of this almighty God. This king. Friends, Jesus is the king of kings. Amen? 
And yet, how is it that people will fear and revere an earthly king, bowing? If you were wanting to uh, go to the White House and hang out with the president, what's going to happen? You're just going to roll in there? No. They've got to do a background check. They're doing all this stuff. And then they're going to make sure that when you go before him, that you're not going to do something stupid, that you're not just going to go and say, hey, what's up, Bush? What's happening? They're going to make sure that that's not what you're going to do. They're going to go through the protocols. They're going to sit you down and they're going to say, okay, here's the things you can say and here's the things you can't say. Here's the things you can do and here's the things you can't do. And yet men and women will submit to such protocol, but yet in the presence of God, the protocol is whatever. Listen, there is a wonderful thing called grace which allows us to go boldly before our God. But understand, as I said before, this holy God is not a God to be mocked. He's a God to be feared. Psalm 89.7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. When we gather as a body in the assembly of the saints, he is greatly to be feared, it says in the Psalms. And friends, I found myself greatly convicted. Greatly convicted. Because as we gather in the assembly of the saints, I, I just ask myself, are you fearing this God? Are you revering this God? Because listen, I'm going to read it again. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. And, and you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of sad of the church in America that, you know, there's just a lot of disruption going on in the assembly as the people gather, the saints gather. And then I ask personally, Lord, where is it that I fall short? And I know I fall short many times as, you know, I'm sitting back there in the booth and and my best friend is preaching the word of God and he uses a long word that I can't even pronounce, let alone even spell. I look to the other people and go, what what was that word? And I'm back there not mocking him, but just, I, I believe, a lack of fear of what God is saying, what God is speaking, what God is wanting to do. Just last week, I'm telling you, I was back there, I had my computer open, I'm looking at stuff, because, you know, going to the three services, I have this idea of, well, I got my fill of this one, so during this service, I'm going to do this in the assembly of the saints. It's wrong. It's wrong. God is to be feared. Psalm 5, 7 says, But as for me, I will come into the house in the multitude of your mercy. And in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. I will come into the house in the multitude of your mercy. Wow. The house of God is where you find the multitude of mercy. And for that reason, friends, fear him. Fear him. Least we become like the ungrateful child who's constantly giving candy. Let us not be that child. Let's be the child who is grateful for the constant mercy and the assembly of the saints. Amen? The fear of the Lord brings protection. 
Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Ah, what a wonderful picture. For those who fear Him, the angel of the Lord encamps around them. I like what it says in Psalm 115, 11. They that fear the Lord trust in the Lord, and He is their help, and He is their shield. You see, when you fear the Lord, there's nothing else to fear. Amen? There's nothing else to fear when you're truly fearing the Lord, when you're in that place, when you, you found yourself here and you're reverently before the Lord, no longer are you fearing what the person next to you is thinking of you. No longer are you thinking about the, the, the ideas of man and, and the stupidities of man and the drama that comes along with it. No longer are you bothered by those things because now you have an eternal perspective. Now you have this reverent fear and you're like, who cares if I get down on my knees and pray? Who cares if I'm crying right now? Who cares if I lift my hands in the air to a holy God? It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what my holy God thinks. And right now I want to revere him. I want to honor him. I don't want to let him down. Because he's done so much for me. His grace and his mercies are new for me every morning. And I don't want to be the, the, the spoiled brat. I want to be all that God would have me to be. And friends, that comes in this position of fearing God. Because with the fear of the Lord, it brings so much blessings in our lives. Listen, Psalm 112.1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed. Oh, how happy is the man that fears the Lord who delights greatly in the commandments of the Lord. Delighting greatly in this. Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And for those who see him as that shepherd, those who fear the Lord, it says there is no want to those who fear him. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it shall abide in satisfaction. He shall not be visited with evil. What a wonderful promise. A wonderful promise for those who fear our holy God. Psalm 103.11 says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Again, the mercy and the fear tied together. Interesting. Those mercies that are new every morning are granted to us for those who fear and revere him. Psalm 103.17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children. This morning I, I, I do pray that we as a congregation would begin this year with a new awakening of this balance of a love and a fear for our God. But how do you develop this fear? What must we do? It's obvious, A, that we repent from not 
But I believe there's something that we can do. And that is to develop the fear of the Lord. It comes through the word of the Lord. Listen. The fear of the Lord comes through the word of the Lord. Just as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the same is said as for the fear of the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31, real quick. I believe we have this up on the screen. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in every year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to the appointed excuse me, comes to appear before the Lord your God in a place which he chooses, you shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and the little ones and the stranger who is within your gates that they may hear and that they may learn to what? Fear the Lord your God. And carefully observe all the words of the law and that their children who have not known him may hear and learn to what? Fear the Lord their God. The word of God is so essential to us. As we read the word of God, we should really gain a healthy, wonderful balance of a love and a fear for our God. Turn now to James. James chapter 1, verse 21. I believe we have it up there as well. says this. This is a great example of both the old and the new coming together with the same idea, balancing us. See, because we have to use the Word of God to balance, that you wouldn't find yourself off. James 1.21 says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like the man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. And what he does. See, James is merely saying as we look into the perfect law of liberty, we are to find the imperfectness or the correction, the rebukes, the training in righteousness in our own lives. Because you and you alone know where you are. 
You know where you've been. You know what you've seen. So when you look into the perfect law of liberty, the law will act as a mirror to show you what needs to be taken care of. Why do we look at a mirror? This morning as I looked in the mirror, what am I going to do? The eyebrows are like this. You've got to comb them down, right? That's what I use the mirror for because it's showing me the, in, the imperfections. In my case, there's many. As you see, I got this thing over here. I got hit with a racket. It was bleeding. And there's, there's a little bit of a, a bruise right here. And then, of course, there's the, the always huh? check out the, the barrels and make sure they're clean, right? <laughs> and the Bible says... What man would look in the barrels, see debris, walk away, and not take care of business? That's merely what he's saying. And yet this is what happens. Christians looking into the perfect law of, of liberty, they look, they see there's debris, and they walk away, but they pull the mask to cover the debris. And friends, I'm telling you, when you pull that mask up, it's not taking care of what needs to be taken care of. Hopefully, there'll be another brother that comes along and says, hey, man, you got, you got a little something there. <laughs> Hopefully, at that point, the Christian would say, yeah, let me pull this mask down. Let me take care of business here. Because the Word of God had pointed that out already, and here you are saying it. Thank you. But so often, what happens is the mask is up and says, hey, don't judge me. Leave me alone with my stuff. Listen, I'm obviously speaking in a spiritual sense, when we look into the Word of God, there should be this holy fear of, man, there's this and there's that, Lord? Okay, I'm giving that up to you. Because that's what happens corporately on Sunday mornings. The Word of God is delivered to us, and we have this wonderful, wonderful opportunity to respond. As it says later in James, that we would confess our sins to one another, that we would be healed. And friends, that's why we come and take care of business. Come and take care of business up here. If you're one that, that, that can't make that move, that physical, then, then turn to somebody and say, man, I need you to pray for me because this, this message has convicted me in this area, in this area, in this area. That's taking care of business. That's being real with God. That is anti-phony, anti-fake, anti-two-faced. Being real with God. And the Word of God is always going to wonderfully balance us in that way. And it's going to keep us in a healthy love and a healthy fear for him. Listen, as a dad, I am super blessed that God has given me three loving daughters and a healthy, wonderful, handsome son, a wonderful, beautiful, good-looking wife. And yet I know when I read the Bible, when I see Ephesians 6, that I'm to train these little ones up in the way of the Lord. And believe me, there is a fear in me that I will stand before my God and that I'll have to give an account of what, what did I do with this family that he has given me. See, if, if, if I don't look into the word of God with that holy fear, then I have this attitude of, I'm just going to manage this family the way I want. I'm going to do things the way my dad did things. No, may it never be. That's an, in my mind, it's an example of that Love, but yet that fear. Lord, thank you for blessing me with these. But man, God, I need your help. 
And the word of God shows me where I'm ill as a husband, where I'm ill as a parent. And if I don't make the correction, if I'm not a doer, if I don't make the adjustments, then I'm just another hypocrite who's willing to say, yes, praise the Lord, everybody. My family's doing fine. Same is true as a pastor. Those who teach the word of God, man, it's clear and simple that there is a harsher judgment towards those. And I say these things to give you this idea of this is where we need to go to receive that fear. Because again, the fear of the Lord will not allow this hypocrisy. Because now, this congregation, when the word is given, conviction is thrown out there, there's going to be a proper response. The mask, everyone, we all said, yeah, we're all sinners. So there's no need to pull the mask out. We can all throw them away now. And this year, 2006, I believe that God is going to do great and mighty things in us. Why? Because there's no hindrance. There's no Jesus saying, woe unto you. The Word of God, my friends, so important in our lives. Keeping the balance. Because we, we can't take a message like today and go to an extreme where all of a sudden it's hell, fire, and brimstone. Fear the Lord. The Word of God will take care of us. Because if we overemphasize the fire and brimstone, man, will neglect the love and the, the kindness of the Lord. But if we have the attitude of, it's all about grace, man. Yeah, it is all about grace. But you cannot neglect His holiness and His justice. Even our passage today, as we turn back to Luke, He gives us a great balance. Jesus does. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 5 is a gnarly passage. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now isn't it interesting that right after that passage, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Do you see the balance? Do you see the balance, church? Because there, our, our wonderful God does just that. He lets us know, man, you're so much more worth than these two sparrows. That, that my thoughts and my love towards you outnumber the grains of the sand of the earth. That I not only know every hair, but I have every hair numbered or every lack of hair. Every hair you shave off, I know, and it was numbered. (laughs) 
God's word, my brothers and sisters, has to be paramount in your walk this new year. It has to be paramount for you because A, it'll give you a good balance in your love and your fear for him. It'll keep you from sinning. It'll keep you from masquerading. It'll keep you from being phony. It'll keep you from being fake. It'll keep you encouraged to press on. It'll keep you in this place where God desires to use you. But if you're not feeling this, then you're doing it wrong. As a Christian, if you're not sensing the call upon the Lord in your life, and you're not feeling His will, and you're not sensing His presence, then brothers, spend this morning on your knees seeking His face. And I tell you that He will respond. He will respond. Allow God's word to speak into your life. Philippians 1.6 says, He who begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. How does he complete that work? With the word of God. But if you're not in the word of God or you're not allowing the word of God to correct you, then that work will cease. You're not just going to be instantly made into this perfect person. That will take place when you are in his presence in the heavenlies. But while you're here, there's obvious work that needs to be done. And that work comes through the perfect law of liberty. That is why this year, make it something that you press into. As Daniel did, purpose in your heart. Make it a, a meaningful purpose. That man, this year God, I want to be real with you. And I know it's going to come through you speaking to me in your word. So this is the year for me, God, to be all about your business. No more phony. No more fake. No more lack of holiness. But a, a desire for real intimacy. A desire. A desire to be completely used. And, and it's been said so many times that, man, this, this coastland could be really affected if God's church would really wake up and allow the body to be stirred up. The gifts that are in this room are wonderful. But they will not function together if we are all in different directions. It's the Word of God that will bring us in one direction. I close with this prayer. Lord, we ask that you would be our shepherd that we would not find ourselves in want, that you would lie us beside still waters and green pastures. Lord, we ask that you would restore our soul. We ask that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod, Lord, and your staff, we ask, would comfort us. We ask that you would prepare before us a table in the presence of our enemies, that you would anoint our heads with oil, that our cups would overflow, and that surely mercy shall follow us everywhere we go, and that all the days of our life we will dwell in your house, O Lord. Jesus, we pray together as a congregation asking that you would have your way with us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would send your spirit convicting the inner crevices, the hidden secrets of our lives. Expose them, Lord, 
as we would rid ourselves of any hypocrisy, rid ourselves of any lack of holiness. And Lord, we now come to you together as a body asking that you would shepherd us wonderfully. We thank you, God. You are our king. We ask that you would govern us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.